This week's reading for the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. The disciples asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? He said, beware that you are not led astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near, but do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end is not going to follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and various places, famines and plagues. There will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. When I was younger, there was a book that I was very, very fond of. I would read it probably once a year over and over and over and over again. And this book is called The Stand. It's written by Stephen King. Now, The Stand was first published in 1978, so it's actually a year older than I am. But it's a great story. It's a great book. Now, if you're not familiar with it, the gist of it is, even though it's a really long book, I'm going to squash it down really, 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 really small. Essentially, there is a genetically modified version of the flu virus. They call it the super flu. And it somehow manages, through an accident, to get out of the lab in which it was created. And this illness, this sickness, this virus has a 99.9% communicability and lethality rate. So essentially, if you are in the same room, you're going to get it and you're going to die. That's the premise of it. But there's 0.1% of the population that, for whatever reason, is immune. We don't know why. It's never explained. But they just never get sick, even when they're exposed to it. So we have this enormous plague, this terrible, devastating plague that takes out almost the entirety of the human population. And those who are left then begin to congregate into two different groups that are essentially broken down into good and evil. And eventually, there's the uh, showdown and, and good triumphs over evil. Uh-huh, it's wonderful. That's the whole book in a nutshell. Now, over the course of the last 40-plus years since it was written, there's been two different times when it has been adapted into the screen in terms of film, or actually TV. There was a miniseries that came out back in 1994. I, it was my freshman year of high school. I can remember that. There was that one. And then actually just a couple of years ago, they also did another adaptation for one of the streamers. I don't even remember which one. And even though I didn't see that one, it wasn't overly well received from all the reports that I heard. But the one that came out back in the 90s, I actually really appreciated it. I really liked it. It was a four-part miniseries, and it was really, really, really well done. Now, there was something that I remember from the first episode. So essentially, it's as the, the plague itself, as the, the, the virus, as the, the illness, the sickness is starting to kill all these people off. 
And one of the main characters decides that she wants to listen to some music. And so she pulls out a record player, and she turns on the record player. And I swear, I was thinking about this earlier, I swear, up one side and down the other, that when she turns it on, the record that's already on the record player, when she turns it on, it starts playing the great REM song, It's the end of the world as we know it. I did a little bit of digging, and actually, that is only existing in my head. That is not the song that was playing, though the scene itself does exist. Now, I had to kind of laugh about it, because if that was actually the case, that would be a little bit too on the nose, wouldn't it? That when all of this devastation, this devastating sickness is going on, and almost everyone in the world dies, it's the end of the world, and then they play that song. Probably a good thing they didn't, but that is the general idea. Now, I want you to take this idea. It's the end of the world and sort of tuck it away in the back of your head because that is a very, very on-the-nose sensibility about what we have read. Now, i got to set the scene for you. Again, in past weeks, in past uh, scripture lessons that we have had, Jesus has been moving ever closer to Jerusalem. In fact, two weeks ago, if you happen to catch things, he was in Jericho, which was his last stop before he gets to Jerusalem. Now, last week, again, if you happen to catch that because of the day, things skipped back and forth, but now we are moving the story forward again. So where we pick up, Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. It's an event known as the triumphal entry, something that we celebrate on on, uh, Palm Sunday. Sorry, my brain went blank for just a second there, but that won't be until next spring. So we've skipped over that. But Over the course of about a week, Jesus is in and around the city of Jerusalem, and most of the time that he's there, as he's waiting for the festival of Passover to arrive for for that celebration, he's pretty much hanging out in the temple courts. Now, the temple courts were right there in Jerusalem. The temple, the Jewish temple, was there, and it was sort of at the pinnacle, but there were all of these courtyards around it, and it was a great big humongous gathering place. And considering it was a special festival when countless Jewish people would be coming into the city for the celebration. There were all kinds of people around, so there's all kinds of activity. There are people coming and going. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Now, sometimes Jesus is speaking. Sometimes he's teaching. Sometimes he's just kind of seeing what's going on, and sometimes he's kind of having debates, and sometimes he's just kind of talking about stuff, and sometimes he's just kind of hanging out. All of these various things are going on, and he's been observing all of this different stuff that's happening, just kind of watching around him, and he's not alone either. He's got his disciples with him. And the thing about the disciples, at least for some of them, they're from a very, very, very small communities where they would never very often see the great big city and all the amazing things like the temple. The only time they really came to the city was for festivals like this. So for them to be sitting there looking at this amazing temple would be kind of awe-inspiring, and we hear about that. That's how things pick up. It kind of seems in this moment that Jesus is just sort of people watching and he's just kind of listening as they're all just sort of sitting around. It reminds me of when we go to an airport and we're waiting for our flight to take off and we just kind of sit there and we watch people because we're all sorted together just passing time in the same place. I can imagine the same sensibility going on there. But for at least a few of the disciples, they're staring at the temple and again, By all accounts, the temple was amazing and glorious, and it was adorned with gold and all sorts of precious gemstones all over, and the sheer size of the building blocks are unfathomable 
They've found through archaeological digs, they found some of these amazing stones, and they're huge. They're like 10 feet wide, 10 feet tall, and like 20 feet long. That's enormous. These stones are huge. So by all accounts, as these guys are just sitting there looking up at the temple, I can imagine they're like, wow, this is incredible. Now, as Jesus hears them saying that, as he hears them talking about this, he kind of makes this prediction. And I don't know if he's making a prediction because he knows it, or if he's just sort of waxing poetic, or if he's just being realistic. He says, you're looking at that temple, and yeah, it's amazing, but I tell you what, there's going to come a day when it's not there. There's going to come a day when not one stone will be left on the other. It will all be torn down. And the disciples hear it, and they kind of freak out, and they're like, whoa, that sounds like the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. Sorry, I shouldn't make jokes, but that's the thought that comes into my head. That's like the end of the world. We can't imagine that it would happen. Now, I don't blame the disciples for this. How often have we all fallen in the same trap when we're looking at something that just seems so incredible that it's like it's eternal, like nothing could ever happen to it? What's interesting, though, is these guys are forgetting their history. This is actually the second temple. The first one had been built about 900 years earlier, and then after a few hundred years, it had been destroyed, only to eventually be rebuilt. So this isn't even the first temple. The temple itself is a testament to the fact that it will be thrown down, that it's not eternal. But in their idea, this is going to last forever. Now, I was thinking about those guys who would have heard it. And they were part of a very specific audience, the very specific people who are actually sitting there to hear Jesus talk about this. But there are other audiences that would also hear this. For instance, there's the audience that would have heard it when, or seen it when Luke wrote this, when the Gospel of Luke was recorded, which is thought to be about 100 years, uh, or, or I should say 100 uh, the year 100, sorry, getting tongue-tied there, about 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And interestingly enough, by that time, the temple was already destroyed. In approximately the year 70, the Roman government came in and laid waste to Jerusalem because some of the people had rebelled against them, and so the temple was utterly destroyed. So by the time Luke's actual intended audience read this, the temple's already gone. It's already a reality, so they would hear this differently. The other audience that it's important to think about is everyone else who reads this throughout the course of history, and that includes us and the various history that we can look back to. But throughout all of this, we start to think about what Jesus is talking about and what the disciples are talking about, because he says the temple is going to be destroyed, and they're like, that must be the end of the world. And then it seems like they want to get it on their calendar so they can expect it. And they say, Lord, when was this going to happen? And what is the sign that it's going to go on? When it's going to be the end of the world, we want to know what's going on. And then Jesus, well, he switches gears just a little bit. Maybe you're thinking that the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. But you know what? The end of the world is only the beginning. Side note, the end of the world is only the beginning was the tagline for that 1994 uh, miniseries of The Stand. The plague that wiped everyone out, the end of the world, just the beginning, because the story goes on. And Jesus seems to be saying the exact same thing. When the temple is thrown down, that is one horrific event. And he's not downplaying it. It's going to be bad. But it's not the end. Things are going to continue. And he says there's going to be all kinds of stuff 
going on. And you're going to think in every single instance, this is the end of the world. This is the end of the world. This is the end of the world. And you start talking about you're going to experience earthquakes, and there's going to be plagues, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be kingdom rising up against kingdom, and nation against nation. And you're going to be betrayed by people who you care very much about. And you're going to be persecuted, and things are going to be bad, and you're going to be put on trial. Some of you are going to be put to death on and on and on and on. It's going to be rough. But the end is not yet to come. That's what Jesus is talking about. Whenever they bump into a situation that seems so dire, that seems so utterly world-ending or earth-shattering, he's promising that's not it. The story goes on. It's not the end. Now, folks, I think about the situation that Jesus is describing here, these, these sort of generic hardships, and they're bad. I'm not saying they're not, but I think about those, and then I think about conversations that I have with different individuals at different times. And inevitably, round about this time of year, pretty much every single year, when we start to get into these texts that talk about the end or the apocalypse or whatever you want to call it, people start asking me, are we in those times now? Are we in the book of Revelation now? Because there's wars and there's famine and there's hardships and there's global warming and there's this issue and there's that issue and this issue and that issue. And it's constantly seeming like the end. And whenever I hear that question, I have to admit, these things are all bad and they are, but I don't think this is it. I don't think this is the end. I think things are going to continue. One of the things that I do in my work is I work with families and individuals at the times of funerals. And I have seen this time after time after time, countless times, when I look out at this immediate family during the the funeral itself, and I see the pain, and I can see the anguish that they're feeling, and I know, having sat through a few personal funerals myself, it feels like the world is ending in this moment. The world just stops. And yet, I have observed time after time after time, the world continues around us. I've stood at countless gravesides with the same situation, the same family who's going through all that hardship, and yet I look over and there's cars driving by the cemetery. Life is continuing because even though in this dire instance that feels to me like this is the end of the world, the world is not ending. Now, Jesus does talk about when the end will occur, how we don't know when it's going to be. And when we think all this bad stuff is pointing at it, guess what? It's going to get a whole lot worse. And I don't know about you, that sounds really dire, but I'm also trying not to worry about it. I'm trying to be optimistic in the sense that life does go on. Ironically, just a couple of days ago, I was at the theater and I saw a production of the show Annie. And you all know Annie. You know the song, the sun will come out tomorrow. It's so optimistic that life is going to go on even in the moments when it doesn't feel like it. And I think maybe that's the promise that we find in here when we consider it. Now, Jesus says, you're going to endure all these things. You're going to go through them and they're going to be hard. They're going to be rough. And sometimes they may even end in death. But he makes a promise. Not even a hair of your head will perish. Not even a hair of your head will be destroyed. Not even a hair of your head will be lost. All of those are the same translation of the same word. Or different translations of the same word, I should say. Not a hair of your head. I don't know about you, but on my body and pretty much everybody, everybody, (laughs) everybody, hair is one of the most fragile things. I mean, think about it. A wisp of, of fire and hair goes. Hair will break. And ironically, hair's already dead tissue. I mean, hair is fragile. 
But the promise that Jesus is making is through all of this hardship, you are not left alone and not even the most fragile part of you will be lost because you have been claimed by one whose promises and whose strength and whose power and whose word about you and your story overcomes everything, even all that junk that feels like it's the end of the world. You have been claimed by God as beloved child. I believe that this is true for all of humanity because God calls all of humanity very good. God views all of humanity as worth as worthwhile and worth saving. And whatever it is that Jesus would accomplish shortly after this passage through his death and resurrection, it is somehow making it possible for us to overcome the power of brokenness and to overcome the power of death even. Now, it's not because of anything we do, but it's always about what God has done and what God says about us. And what God says about us is you are mine. And no matter what happens, nothing will overcome that claim. And when the last word of your story is written, God gets that last word. And that last word is a promise. A promise that no matter what happens in this existence, when we get to that unknown thing out there in the future, whether it's the apocalypse, if we want to call it that, or it's just us going through death into whatever lies on the other side, the promise of God is that that's not the end. The end is only the beginning. It's the beginning of something new, something different, something that we can only think about, that we can only hope about, that we can only have a little glimmer in the promises of the scriptures, but God promises that we will see him. May we hold on to that promise in the midst of hard stuff, remembering that we are never left alone in it. That is the ultimate promise. No matter what we will experience, we are never left alone. And the one who is with us has claimed us, and that claim will never be overcome. Amen.